Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Joining us on this episode is New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Mooney, whose latest book is called Normal Sucks, How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Your path to being a bestselling author wasn't an easy one. In fact, your path to becoming a writer and even a reader was tough. Tell us about the struggles you faced and what Normal Sucks is all about. Yeah, you're right about that. Certainly wasn't what my high school guidance counselor thought I would be doing. You know, I struggled with with school. I was the kid who spent most of the day chilling out in, in the hallway with the janitor. Grew up on a first-name basis with Shirley, the receptionist in the principal's office. Uh, struggled with reading. Spent a lot of time hiding in the bathroom to escape reading out loud with tears streaming down my face. I didn't learn to read until I was 12. And so I had all sorts of low expectations. You know, I was told I'd flip burgers for a living. I was told I'd be a high school dropout. I was told I'd be incarcerated. And I beat those odds, you know, opposed to flipping burgers, I ended up writing books. And opposed to being a high school dropout, I became a uh, college graduate. And opposed to an inmate, I became uh, an advocate and somebody who's dedicated his entire life to building a more inclusive world for folks who learn and live differently. And uh, that's really what the the new book is all about. I know it's a subtle title, Normal Stuff. <laughs> 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 you know, you kind of just get right to the point. It's about this idea that looms over all of us, that there's a normal brain or body that we should have. It's about where that idea comes from and how it's been used to to give the message to folks who don't fit the myth of normal that something's wrong with them. And most importantly, it's about, you know, what, what we can do as individuals, as parents, as a society to empower folks with differences uh, who have value to give to the world, not despite their differences, but because of them. You have overcome so many things and overcame so much as a child. And one of those things in your story that really just got to me was how you overcame being suicidal at the age of 12. Can you talk about how you got to that point and how you got through it? Yeah, I got to that point because if you, you know, get the message that you're stupid, crazy, lazy, if you find yourself, you know, on the outside in that hallway, looking in, in the bathroom, trying not to be seen, if you find yourself in the you know, stupid reading group, you believe that you're defective and worthless. You give up hope for your future. That's how I found myself at 12, struggling with a number of mental health challenges, anxiety, depression. And that's how I found myself with a plan for suicide when I was 12. There were many things that facilitated me getting out of that dark place. You know, I had many people in my life who 
believed in me, who loved me unequivocally, who gave me the message that different wasn't deficient. But specifically, I had an experience with my father. My father was somebody who struggled with his own differences, struggled with his own sense of shame around those differences, somebody who was shamed for those differences, and uh, somebody I thought was ashamed of me because of my differences. We had a tough go in our relationship. He came through when I needed him most. You know, I was 12. I had this plan for suicide. Me and my father were out together, and he turned to me and said, hey, I love you regardless of how you do in school, and I love you just for who you are. And that, that saved my life, and uh, everyone, everyone deserves that. You struggled with dyslexia and ADHD, and I'm wondering if you could describe for us what it feels like to have those things as a child. Yeah, on the ADHD side, you know, that stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. That means that for me, the school desk might as well be a form of enhanced interrogation that would make Dick Cheney proud, you know. (laughs) My my experience at the school desk is is one of pure torture. You know, five seconds in the class, the foot starts to bounce. Ten seconds in the class, both feet start to bounce. Fifteen seconds in the class, you know, I bust out the drums. Fifteen minutes in the class, I'm, I'm the kid trying to take his leg and put it behind his neck, you know. And I'm constantly shamed for that experience and that behavior. You know, we confuse or conflate being the good kid with being the compliant kid. And we moralize young people who are non-compliant, who don't raise their hand, don't sit still well, and we call them a problem. I mean, I had a teacher in second grade named Mrs. C, many, many gifted, brilliant teachers who I celebrate every day. Mrs. C is not one of those. She She would point at me and she'd say, hey, Jonathan, what's your problem? So my experience of being ADD was being made to feel that I was a problem being made to feel that I was a bad kid, that I was morally defective in some way. And then there's analogy there also with the experience of being dyslexic, you know, who and how look the same to me, you know, the theirs all look the same to me. You know, when I went away to college and I went to this, you know, fancy Ivy League school, Brown University, I swear, I swore that that Brown offered a a class in orgasmic chemistry, right? Uh, A lot of people might sign up for that. (laughs) Yeah, imagine my disappointment on the first day of that class, you know. (laughs) So, so, you know, I, I struggle with reading, I struggle with writing, but really what was disabling was being made to feel stupid because I didn't have the the reading brain because we confuse being smart with reading and and the smart kid reads fast and the smarter kid reads early and then you find yourself in the in the stupid reading group if you don't have that brain. So it really wasn't the the ADD or the dyslexia that that disabled me. It was the way those differences were treated and it was ultimately the sort of debased and negative self-concept that that I got about myself as a human being as a result to that treatment. You say to find your strengths and compensate for your weaknesses. How can you find the secret talent and skills that your kids might have if they have a learning disability and those aren't necessarily evident? Well, first we got to, you know, we got to pay attention, you know. We have to pay attention first to the tests that diagnose a kid with a learning or attentional difference. And we have to pay attention to the totality of those tests. You know, often we treat those 
tests as, you know, bad news. You know, mm-hmm. I know that's how they were treated in my life. You know, yeah. I remember when the school psychologist called me and my mom in to talk about the results of my testing. And it was literally, you know, like somebody had died, you know, mm-hmm. like there was yeah. soft music mm-hmm. playing in the background and there was, you know, a box of tissues on the table, you know. And, oh, my uh, gosh. Uh-huh. You know, and like all the mirrors were covered because we were going to sit Shiva for the death of my normality. You know, it it was it was literally like a tragedy. But the reality is the same test that that rightfully identified my challenges with sitting still and and reading and which gave information that I wasn't trying to be willfully defiant or I wasn't dumb, those same tests surface a whole bunch of strengths and we don't pay attention to those. You know, we know that young folks with with ADD are often more entrepreneurial than the general population. We know young folks with diverse learning styles are often more creative than the general population. So let's pay attention to the totality of what we learn in those, those tests and let's focus on those. And then the other thing we need to do to sort of surface those those talents that sometimes we don't see, we miss with that deficit lens because we're paying so much attention to what's wrong and not what's right, is we need to look at the sort of compensatory skills that young people develop and deploy to survive a system that's not made for them. You know, I had this great teacher I met in my travels. I, I travel around talking to folks a lot. And this teacher said to me, you know, she celebrates not the top of her class, but the bottom of her class, because those kids, school is hard and they're resilient. They persevere. They have to be creative to survive. So there's all sorts of clever survival techniques that young people use, but often those clever techniques with our skills and talents are seen as disruptive or as a problem. So I think if we pay attention to those and reframe those, we'll, we'll find the strengths and gifts. Give you a good example of that. I gave a talk back in the day in Andover, Massachusetts, and I was giving my talk, talking about my reading challenges, and a teacher came up to me afterwards and said, hey, you know, your, your talk reminded me of a, of a student of mine. And this student, who was dyslexic, every single time before he had to read out loud, he would make a joke every day, every time. And for the longest time, I thought that that kid was just being a pain or disruptive. But I realized it was a compensation using humor to escape a hard situation. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. guess who that kid was? That kid was Jay Leno. Wow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. Well, you didn't learn to read until you were 12. You mentioned that, and, and 12 must have been a, such a difficult time for you because you also talked about feeling that you wanted to commit suicide at that age. I'm wondering, though, how you finally managed to learn to read at that age. What, what turned the corner for you? Yeah, a couple, couple things. You know, first of all, I was always read to, and that's really important because, you know, we have this false dichotomy. You know, we think reading is better than listening. And we see that, you know, play out in schools and beyond where, you know, it's cheating to use books on audio format, digital format, and mm-hmm. the smart kids need to read, right? Right. And I was always not just read to in the, in the sense that, you know, my mom read to me, but I had many gifted teachers. And I do want to be really clear, a part of my journey of, of thriving was, was facilitated by a lot of teachers who thought outside the box about me. And so I had really gifted teachers who, who refused to buy into that false dichotomy and said, hey, you know, we'll get your books on tape. We'll, we'll let, it, let you be read too. So that way I could engage with content that was interesting to me. You know, the second thing that was really important is I had a lot of education 
who believed in, you know, uh, choice in reading. You know, reading is, is, is not an indication of one's intelligence. You know, the human species was never actually meant to read. A good friend of mine, Marianne Wolf, speaks eloquently about how the reading brain is really an aberration in the arc of human history. It, it's 200 years old, if that. And so I had a lot of people in my life who say, look, it's a tool to get information. It's not smart or stupid. It's just a, it's a pragmatic thing. And they would allow me to engage with reading about things I was interested in. And we know a lot of research around interest-based reading and struggling readers do better when they're choosing what they read. But perhaps most importantly, and this is where the age 12 comes in, because I'm not alone in that. I've heard 12, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, a lot in my travels. You know, my mom used to read to me a book called Leo the Late Bloomer. It's a children's book. You know, it's literally for like, you know, five years old kids. And it's about a lion that can't do things, you know, can't read, can't write, doesn't eat neatly, and then blooms later. You know, that book for children, my mom read to me every day until I was 18 years old, right? The message she gave wow. me was, you'll hit your stride. You're a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom and other moms and grandmas and granddads and, and fathers, you know, have been given that wisdom for a long time. And sometimes it's dismissed, you know, as, oh, that's just wishful thinking. But the reality is we know more than ever that people with atypical brains are late bloomers. You know, I'll quote from a research study. And this is a research study from McGill University and the NIH, National Institute of Health. And the research study, I quote, is ADHD is not a deficit, but a maturation delay. It's a late blooming brain. So I was given opportunity to engage in content through listening. I was given an opportunity to engage with stuff I cared about through choice. And then ultimately, I was given time and I was given the opportunity to hit my stride. And that's what facilitated that breakthrough. We love having you as part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. We know a lot of you want to be your own boss or already operate your own business. That's why we want you to know about Shopify. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Hear that? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes reality. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform that's revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sale channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you're covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. Once you start selling, Shopify makes getting paid simple by instantly accepting every type of payment. Running a growing business means getting the insights you need wherever you are. With Shopify's single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's in Brooklyn, and, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success 
every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash nobody, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash nobody to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash nobody. What main changes do you think need to be made in our education system to help children who may not be traditional learners excel? Yeah, let me give you give me a few, starting from the sort of individual up to the systemic. So we need to flip the script on the deficit orientation that we have that surrounds struggling learners and to some extent all learners. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this this teacher named Mr. R, my third grade teacher. He had a relentless commitment to the idea that everyone had a strength and talent. And it was his job as an educator to help that young person find that. And that was the purpose of education. And of course, he would ask me, as he did all students in his class that third grade year, hey, what are you good at, Jonathan? And I would say nothing because I was so immersed in that what's wrong, deficit orientation, negative test result mindset. And one day he came to me and said, hey, Jonathan, you know, I've been watching you and and I know you are good at telling stories. You are so good at telling stories that you could be a writer. You know, I was nine years old. No one had ever said that to me. I looked at him and said, a writer, Mr. R? Are you out of your goddamn mind? You know, I, I I can't spell, man. What are you talking about, dude? And he laughed. And then he looked at me and said, Jonathan, screw spelling, you know. Forget what you can't do and focus on what you can do. And we have this deficit-oriented system that sees education as filling up the empty vessel of making sure everyone is good at everything, when the reality is successful human beings don't get good at everything, they get good at something. And I think that sort of individual shift in the way we relate to students, the way we relate to our children, but ultimately in the orientation of the system, that's a, a huge change that we can make. As a father of young sons and as someone with learning issues, what advice would you have for other parents in terms of helping their children who learn differently? Well, first, just flip the script on that deficit, that deficit model, you know, and every day find the good. And I know it's hard. I got three boys, you know. It's hard for all parents under any circumstances in our busy lives to to find the good. But it is a moral imperative that we do so, especially for young folks who are struggling and have labels. Find the good, celebrate the good, and then build a pathway around interest, strength, and talent. That's job number one. You know, job number two is to challenge every day this idea that there's a normal a brain or body that everyone should have and to elevate challenging this idea of a normal to an issue of social justice. You know, we are in a, a really important cultural moment where we are doing better work when it comes to the issue of inclusion of historically marginalized groups of human beings. Uh, and that's important. And we can go further and we can understand that the idea of normal has been used to marginalize, remediate, and in some, in some cases, segregate and incarcerate whole swaths of human beings who have been called not normal. And it is a, an ethical obligation that we all have 
to fight for every single human being's right to be different. And that's something we should instill in our children, but it's something that we should all, from a principled perspective, wake up every day and fight for. What do you do today if you feel anxious or depressed? How are your coping strategies different than they were when you were a child? I didn't really have coping strategies as a child. It wasn't thought of that way. It was thought of as, you know, those are bad things. Don't experience those bad things and mm-hmm. be like every, everybody else. And yeah. that, that, ain't, that ain't helpful. <laughs> hey, you that, know what I mean? Yeah, like, I was going to say that doesn't do much. That doesn't work, you know. And, and, and that is the remediation paradigm. And, you know, that comes from somewhere, you know, this notion of of a normal, which didn't come into the English language until the 1860s, you know, it was built on the backs of people called abnormal and then set of systems that was about trying to make the square peg fit the round hole to change the person, not the context, right? So that whole notion of like, well, just don't be those things, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. be those things instead, uh, that didn't work. So Mm -hmm. in my life, because it's been a long, long struggle, I'm I'm very honest with it with my children, I'm honest with my wife, have been for 20 years, and with everyone I talk to, you know, I, I struggled with depression, anxiety, not just that day and when I was 12 and not just the next year or the next year, but last year or last month or tomorrow. Like those are very real things for me. So the path forward for that has always been one, get help. You know, mm-hmm. that that's hard to do, you know, easy to say. It's hard for men to do, you know, this notion of like, hey, you got to buck up and work harder, which is just so ingrained in sort of our toxic masculinity that we have as a culture. So get help. I've seen I've seen more shrinks than, than you can imagine. You know, like it's it's all good. You know, right. those are tools. That's not a problem. That's what it means to trying to grow as a human being Two, know what your triggers are. You know, I know my I know what these triggers are. You know, I know that I can't watch Donald Trump on the TV more than one hour a day. You know what I mean? Like that, that, ain't good, that ain't a good thing. You know? I know not sleeping is an issue. I, you know, I know that too much drinking is a, is a problem. Those are all things that sort of that don't go well with my neurology. And then three, I have to have some sort of like ripcord stuff. You know what I mean? Like, hey, what what do I do to pull the ripcord when things are out of hand? For me, it happens to be it happens to be exercise and it happens to be meditation. Those are the things for me. It's different for everyone, though those two things are known to be as effective as medication often. But everyone needs those rip cords, those things to go to, kind of like break the glass box when you're in trouble that you know will right the ship a little bit and give you enough clarity and headspace to get help and to avoid those triggers that you know got you in the place you're at. What message would you like to get out to teachers in terms of how they can make things better for students who are learning disabled? Mm Mm-hmm. First and foremost, understand that the problem isn't the difference. You know, the problem is the interaction between difference and environment. The problem wasn't ADD in my life. The problem was the school desk. The problem wasn't dyslexia. That's a difference with challenges, with strengths. The problem was the reading groups and the sense of shame that came from being in what everyone knew was the stupid reading group. The problem is not the difference, but the interaction between difference and context. And that sounds like, you know, a lot of words and and maybe sort of, you know, rhetorically reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, but it's not because when we, when we understand that it's not the difference, that's the problem. We can look towards changing the context 
to facilitate transformation for that student. But right now, for the most part, at no fault of educators, you know, it's really important to realize that A, hardest job in the world. B, folks have been sort of indoctrinated in a system from the time they went to graduate school to the rewards and the incentives of the system that they find themselves in to the macro level public policy that's driving that system. We are in a system that says if the kid doesn't fit, it's their problem. Let's make them fit. But the future is if the kid doesn't fit the school, let's make the school fit the kid. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I feel like it's not just teachers and parents who are having the issue. I feel like it's other kids dealing with the kid who has Mm -hmm. the disability and that bullying is so hard. What can you do if you're a teacher and you're seeing this going on in the classroom or if you're the parent of a kid who is the victim of bullying? Well, let's let's first of all call that what it is. That is not just bullying, but it is targeting a particular minority group. And that is a form of discrimination. You know, I I hear stories like this all the time. Hey, my son or daughter with autism has never been invited to a birthday party. Never. Not one. Not one. Imagine the sense of shame and pain that that causes that child, that Mm -hmm. family. And then I go to the school and I say, hey, let me give you a thought experiment for a second. Imagine for a moment if the Latino kid in the class was never invited to a birthday party. Imagine for a moment if the black kid in the class was never invited to a birthday party. Would you tolerate that as a school? No, you would not. You would call that discrimination. But when it comes to people with atypical brains and bodies, that's not what it's called. It's called kids being kids. And that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And we need to elevate the bullying and the marginalization of folks with atypical brains and bodies to the status of discrimination. It's not right when the Latino kid doesn't get invited to the birthday party or the black kid or the kid with autism or the kid with CP or the kid with an atypical sexuality. None of that is right. But often we don't include people with different brains and bodies in that. You know, in many of the schools hate speech policies, policies from schools about what words are constitute hate speech. The vast majority of those hate speech policies do not include the word retard. Kids are called retarded every day on the playground. And that is a form of hate speech. Most people don't realize that the word retard came from the eugenics period. That's a period in American history and beyond in which whole groups of people were called defectives, retardeds, idiots, morons, all clinical terms, and then targeted for incarceration in institutions and sterilization. So we need to understand the history of those words. We need to elevate those words to be uh, hate speech because that's what they are. So I think that's a place for us to start, you know, to understand that disability is a form of diversity. And as we think about building a more diverse and equitable and inclusive world, we need to include those folks who have historically been left out. Are you encouraged by what you see happening in society? I'm absolutely encouraged by what by what's happening. I'm encouraged for two reasons, being optimistic. I'm optimistic for two reasons. One, I have never been more inspired by the teachers on the front lines of schools in America in my entire professional life. My first book came out when I was 22 years old. I just graduated from college, a book called Learning Outside the Lines, which will celebrate its 20th anniversary with a new edition next year. And so I've been to 50, all 50 states, six countries, most of the 50 states multiple times. And for the first 15 years of that, 
it was tough go, you know, it was, you know, teachers stuck in a no child left behind system and they were demoralized. Kids were demoralized. Families were demoralized. But that's changing. The group of teachers right now are immersed in inclusion, equity, immersed in diversity, include learning diversity and physical diversity in that diversity framework. And they're ready to kick some ass on behalf of not just some kids, but all kids. So I'm super inspired by that. And then I'm inspired by by the moment that that we are having, that if we can hold on to, we'll be transformational. And if we can expand the circle of who we fight to be included, who do we fight for equity for? It needs to be a conversation that centers and, and is inclusive of people with atypical brains and bodies as well. And if we can hold that whole, that big whole, uh, we can build a world that, that doesn't just work for some, but works for all. And Jonathan, as you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me. And at the end of each program, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So in your case, what is it that you wish somebody had told you about learning disabilities, being normal, or just life in general, wherever you want to take it, that you wish that they had because it would have made your life a lot easier? Nobody told me different isn't deficient. Nobody told me that uh, 50% of small businesses are run by people with learning differences. Nobody told me that EMTs with ADHD are better at their job than so-called normal EMTs, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because Mm -hmm. if your house is on fire, you want that dude to have ADD, right? (laughs) Nobody told me that 85% of people at art colleges creative professionals have some sort of neurodiversity. Nobody told me different isn't deficient. And with the exception of my mom, nobody told me normal sucks. Reject being normal. Thrive outside the lines. Jonathan, how can people connect with you online and on the internet? Yeah, come find me, jonathanmooney.com. Come say hello to me on Facebook and Instagram and all that good stuff. And don't just come say hello to me, but also join this movement of people who are rejecting normal, sharing their different. Because when we fake normal, we give it power. When we reject it and share our different, we take it down and build a more inclusive world. So folks can join that movement at hashtag normal sucks, thrive different. And I look forward to hearing from people. Jonathan, we thank you so much for joining us. This has really been enlightening. You are amazing and inspiring. And I really just think you have such a great message to spread. And I hope our audience will appreciate that. I'm sure they will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really it was really my honor. Thanks for making time to talk about what's normal, what's not, and let's all celebrate celebrate the different. Yeah, totally agree. Our thanks to author Jonathan Mooney. Again, his latest book is called Normal Sucks: How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines. His website is jonathanmooney.com. I'm Jan Black and I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 